0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 11th, 2020. Go figure, it's 9-11. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 10 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It is subtitled, Who are the world? We had some bad thunderstorms here in Panama City recently within the last few hours. Our power went out two hours ago, so we are running on generators to present this podcast. Yahweh willing, we will finish it successfully. Initially, I wanted to mock pop culture and pondered the title, We Are the World, for this presentation. But sadly, there are always questions and contentions, even among various assortments of identity cushions, over the scope and comprehension of that simple two-letter word, we. It's always a problem. Who are we? Another popular product of our corrupted modern culture had more recently mused about forever trusting who we are and nothing else matters. To me, those words may almost ring true if we properly interpret that same word, we. But his error is made evident a few lines later where he sang, Life is ours. We live it our way. And believing that opens a door to a multitude of sins. While James Hetfield may have been singing about his own intimate relationship, the words have constantly been echoed through the minds of a generation of Western and marginally Christian youth. And people come to believe what they often repeat to themselves, even if it isn't true, just because it sounds good. But as Paul of Tarsus had written in chapter 6 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, what, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul's words there are true. Whether or not we are cognizant of how they are true. Man has no control over his own destiny. And it is hubris. It is the epitome of arrogance. It is humorous to think otherwise. Therefore, man must seek to please the God who does control his destiny and live his way. That is certainly one of the significant underlying messages in the wisdom of Solomon. In our last presentation, in this commentary on wisdom, we had left off in Wisdom chapter 5 where Solomon had departed from his descriptions of the plight of the ungodly. They were portrayed as being compelled to acknowledge their ungodliness and to regret the way in which they had lived their earthly lives, eternally suffering the inevitable consequences of their actions. Then once again Solomon turned to describing the destiny of the righteous, whom he said shall realize the promise of a glorious kingdom. That must be the same kingdom which was later announced in the gospel of Christ and which Christians are instructed to anticipate and for which to prepare themselves by his apostles. So we had last read and discussed verse 17 of Wisdom chapter 5. Which, speaking of Yahweh God, says he shall take to him his jealousy for a complete armor and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. Here we had explained at length from Romans chapter 8 and from Isaiah chapter 43. That where Solomon had used that word, which is translated as creature, he meant to refer to a specific creation, as Paul had also used the term in Romans, and the children of Israel in particular are that specific creation with which Solomon was concerned, spelled out in that chapter of Isaiah, chapter 43. We verified this, where Solomon had once again used the same term later in Wisdom chapter 19. And speaking of the children of Israel at the time of the Exodus, in contrast to the older and broader Adamic world, he wrote for the whole creature in his proper kind, excluding bastards was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that thy children, speaking to Yahweh God himself, that thy children might be kept without hurt. In response to that, we also explained that those peculiar commandments were meant only for the same children of Israel, exclusive, of all other peoples where we had left off after that 17th verse of wisdom, chapter 5. Solomon also began to make an allegory that is quite similar to one which appears in Isaiah and also in chapter 6 of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. In part, he wrote that Yahweh God would take to him his jealousy for Complete armor. And now in verse 18, the very next verse, after where we left off several weeks ago, Solomon continues that allegory. And he says, we shall put on righteousness. I'm sorry, he shall put on righteousness. Referring to Yahweh God himself. Righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. He shall take holiness for an invincible shield. His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword. And now we shall pause here midway through verse 20 of Wisdom chapter 5. We would translate the last clause of verse 18 to read and place as a helmet unhypocritical judgment, not true judgment. The word anubokrites is unhypocritical and not merely true. The Greek word hubocrites is the immediate source of our English word hypocrite. The word for holiness in verse 19, holiness for an invincible shield, is a feminine form, hosiotes, of the noun hosius. Another Greek word, which in the New Testament is more frequently translated as holy, is hagius. While hagius denotes something which is set apart and dedicated to God, set apart for God, hosius denotes what is sanctioned by God, by his law. So hagius is what is holy, from the perspective of men hosius is what is holy from the perspective of god in profane greek hosius was used contrary to another word dikaius which denotes what is sanctioned by the law of man however in the scriptures dikaius is used more generally to describe what is just or what is righteous But there is a difference between Hoseus and Hagius. Hoseus being an invincible shield. When you follow what is sanctioned by God, you should expect that to be your invincible shield. Because you're trying to do right in his eyes and not in your own eyes. Earlier in Wisdom, Solomon had depicted the natural tendency of the ungodly to despise and persecute the righteous. Now, here we see that not only that, now, here we see that only God Himself can and will defend the righteous, which is expressed in verses 15 and 16, which we commented on at length in our last presentation of wisdom. But the righteous live forevermore. Their reward is also with the Lord, and the care of them is with the Most High. Therefore shall they receive a glorious kingdom and a beautiful crown from the Lord's hand. For with his right hand shall he cover them, and with his arm shall he protect them. As Christians, If we truly and unhypocritically keep his law, which is his righteousness, what is sanctioned by him, then we can hope for his protection. But that does not mean that we will not face trials. The trials of our faith will always be with us. This is also made evident in Isaiah chapter 59. Where we read a similar description, similar to what Solomon has here in Wisdom, of the ungodly, addressing the children of Israel, and the chapter opens with the words, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you, between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Then, after describing some of their sins committed in their ungodly state, we read later in that chapter of Isaiah where the ungodly children of Israel are compelled to make admissions similar to what Solomon had also described here throughout chapters 4 and 5. And they say, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh, and departing from the way of our God, speaking oppression and revolt, Oppressing the righteous is, as we've seen in the wisdom of Solomon, rebellion against Yahweh. Conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yeah, truth fails, and he that departs from evil, makes himself a prey. In other words, the righteous man is persecuted by the ungodly. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. He that departs from wickedness makes himself a prey for those same ungodly sinners who would then want to persecute him for his righteousness, as we also saw here in the earlier chapters of wisdom, especially, I believe, in chapter 2. Now that is also made evident in this passage, as Isaiah made a similar description of Yahweh's necessary intervention, where he continued, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16, and he wrote, And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. In other words, no man was standing up against the wicked who were persecuting the righteous. All these LGBT antifa faggots and and Black Lives Matter guerrillas are out there abusing the, the people of God and white Christian America, and the government and anybody else isn't doing a damn thing about it. This is being played out before our eyes today. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. That word zeal, as I will remark later, could also be called or be translated as jealousy. There is a slightly similar allegory in Isaiah chapter 11, but not nearly as complete as we see here in chapter 59. The word zeal may have also been rendered as jealousy and it is described similarly to what Solomon wrote here in Wisdom. Other aspects of the allegory are also similar and the similarities are more significant than the differences. It should be evident that both Solomon and Isaiah each made the same allegory in the same context of the judgment of Yahweh, which is brought upon the ungodly of the children of Israel, who would persecute the righteous. Later, in chapter 6 of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul of Tarsus spoke of the struggle which Christians had to face against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So he warned them, that in order to protect themselves, they had to arm themselves with the elements of the faith, writing, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now many commentators esteem the passage from Isaiah chapter 59 to have been an inspiration for Paul's similar allegory in Ephesians chapter 6. However, a comparison of all three allegories, Isaiah 59, Paul in Ephesians 6, and the wisdom of Solomon here, a comparison of all three allegories shows that this passage of wisdom is just as likely a candidate for that consideration that Paul drew his inspiration from wisdom. But the subject of the allegories in wisdom and in Isaiah are Yahweh God himself, what he is going to do. And they are actually closer to one another in meaning, even being expressed in a similar context. But Paul's subject is Christians in general, what they should do to defend themselves. And therefore, he was not making an exact citation of either wisdom or Isaiah. Although either one or even both of them may have been his inspiration. Now to finish verse 20, where the subject is Yahweh God, having prepared himself for vengeance in that manner. His jealousy as a whole armor, his righteousness as a breastplate, true judgment as a helmet holiness as his shield what's ordained by him to be righteous and his wrath as a sword next solomon says and the world shall fight with him against the unwise now that word translated as unwise para is a noun formed from the adjective "paraphrone," which means wandering from reason or senseless, and in some contexts, out of one's wits or even deranged. So it may more accurately be translated, and the world shall fight with him against the lunatics or even the nutcases. That certainly describes all of the sinners who have forsaken Christianity in modern times. The Antifa types, communists, and sodomites rioting across the West today. Perhaps a man must be out of his wits to have set oneself or himself in opposition to God in the first place. And the day of their judgment, it's coming. But much more significantly, here we are compelled to seek the definition of the term world. And the world shall fight with God against these nutcases or these lunatics or these people who are wandering or have wandered from reason. We are compelled to seek what Solomon meant by that term world. And to do so honestly, we must seek what it it was that Solomon himself had understood the term to mean rather than defining it for ourselves according to what may satisfy our own feelings or opinions. Furthermore, in order for our interpretation of the creature of verse 17 to be correct, It must be consistent with Solomon's use of the word world here in verse 20. If it is not consistent, then we have failed. That is because where we see the earlier phrase, which in which Yahweh states, in which Yahweh God states, or I'm sorry, in which Solomon states that Yahweh God shall make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies where we see that it is a parallelism with this statement here that the world shall fight with him against the unwise in other words here in this passage of wisdom in order to interpret solomon's words with consistency so as to truly understand their meanings The creature of verse 17 must represent something which is consistent with his use of the word world here in verse 20. Both statements are made in the same context. Speaking of those men who would be on the side of Yahweh versus those who are in opposition to him at the time when he decides to take vengeance against them against his enemies neither term can refer to the either creation or world creature or world neither term can refer to the totality of everything which exists or, the, or to the totality of everything on the planet because in verse 17 creature is set in opposition to enemies and here in verse 20, world is set in opposition to the unwise, as the King James Apocrypha and Breton Setogen translate that word. World is set opposite to the unwise. The world is going to join God in his fight against the unwise. Creature is set in opposition to enemies. So the term creature, whoever that represents, is going to fight with God against his enemies. So what do these terms mean, creature and world? And when we interpret them, they both have to mean the same thing. If we arrive at the conclusion that one means something different than the other, then we are in error because we are making solomon contradict himself and we cannot interpret solomon in a way which forces solomon to contradict himself i said these were these phrases in verse 17 and verse 20. these clauses were a parallelism the parallelism as we have often explained is a common feature in Hebrew literature, where the same phenomenon or the same object or the same event is described successively in different ways. So in a parallelism, for one part of the parallelism to be interpreted in a certain way, if that interpretation is true, then the other part or parts even of the parallelism must also be interpreted in a similar way. If the language of each part does not allow interpretations which are similar in meaning, then they must be interpreted adieu, because the initial interpretation is wrong. But if they can be interpreted in similar ways, producing a similar meaning, then we can be assured that the interpretation certainly is true. Here Solomon is saying that the world shall fight with Yahweh God against the unwise. But how could men who are simply unwise not be part of that same world and instead be found opposed to it? And if Christians are instructed to despise the world, How could the world be found on the side of God? It is Christians who are supposed to be opposed to the world and not merely to the unwise. Here, Solomon also said that the creature or creation would fight against the enemies of God. But how could the enemies not be part of the creation? So if we cannot make sense of these two passages with the common understandings of world, which is the Greek word cosmos, and creature, which is the Greek word kitesis, often also translated creation, then the common understandings of these words must be wrong if we can't make sense of these two passages with their common understandings, then the common understandings must be wrong, and they must have alternative meanings in Scripture. As Joshua Christ had said in John chapter 17, speaking of his disciples, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So, If the world is going to fight against the enemies of God, the apostles are going to be on the side of the enemies? They're not going to be in the fight? Are you kidding me? Or is that a different world that Christ is speaking of? In chapter 5 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul continued to warn Christians that then must you needs go out of the world. In other words, Separate yourself from the world. Likewise, the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Who do you mean by them? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They, the same them, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak in the world, and the world hears them. Then also James had written in chapter 4 of his epistle that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. However, in John 3.16, a favorite passage of denominational Christians, the apostle is interpreted as having written, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son." that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that is wrongly interpreted to include everybody and everything on the planet, in spite of the fact that many statements of Christ recorded by the same apostle clearly contradict that interpretation. For example, in John chapter 17, Christ had said, I pray for them. His disciples, I pray pray. not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. In other words, they are yours, speaking to Yahweh the Father. Then a little further on, I I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Then in John chapter 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence or from here of this world. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So we have a true world and a spurious world doesn't hear his voice. But going back to John chapter 14, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, that spurious world cannot receive that spirit of truth, because it sees him not, neither does it know him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and shall be in you. Christ is not contradicting himself. So all of these words of Christ and others which he had spoken served to prove that there is more than one world being referred to in Scripture. There is the whole world which lieth in wickedness, as John described in chapter 5 of his first epistle. And then there is the world which Christ had come to save. They are clearly not the same because the wicked world cannot receive the truth for reason that it had never known God, as Christ himself had explained. Therefore, Solomon must also have meant something different where he used this term world here. And like his use of the term creature, that something is also defined elsewhere here in Wisdom. The world is not the planet and everything on it. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, describes the fate of the planet and everything on it in an allegory where he wrote in chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, According to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That promise of which Peter spoke is found in, Isaiah's, in Isaiah chapter 55 and Isaiah chapter 56, I'm sorry, 65 and 66, And it is made exclusively for the children of Israel. That is the promise to which Peter refers. And Peter must have meant it in that same context. That Yahweh would create a new heavens and a new earth for the children of Israel. And they are not to be taken literally. Solomon's definition of world is found in Wisdom chapter 18. where speaking of the events of the Exodus and the establishment of the children of Israel as a kingdom under the Lord of God. He wrote, For in the long garment, the long garment was the garment of the high priest. For in the long garment was the whole world. And in the four rows of the stone." Was the glory of the Father's graven. That is also a parallelism. The long garment of the high priest contained the whole world. The four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven, is a parallelism. And thy majesty, the name of Yahweh, upon the diadem of his head, as Josephus explains, The ineffable name of Yahweh, which was written in four Greek characters, but in four Hebrew letters, was inscribed on the diadem of the high priest. But those four rows of stones described in Exodus chapter 28 represent the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So it becomes apparent, the whole world being on the garment of the high priest, That's where the four rows of stones were. So it becomes apparent that the children of Israel alone are the world with which Yahweh God is concerned throughout the balance of the scriptures. That is the world which Christ had come to save, as he himself declared, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are the only world which matters to Yahweh God, and if one is of one of those 12 tribes, and if one is speaking in reference to them, only then can one justly make the assertion that we are the world in reference to scripture and the promises of Yahweh for his people Israel. As we have also explained, according to Paul Tarsus in Romans chapter 8, and Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43. The creature of verse 17 in this chapter of wisdom is the adamic creation. And more specifically, the children of Israel distinguished from the rest of the race of Adam. So both Paul and Isaiah accord with Solomon in Wisdom chapter 18. The children of Israel are the whole world Of Yahweh God's concern, they are the creature which verse 17 describes God as making his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. And they are also the world which will fight with God against the unwise, against all of those who had not kept the wisdom of God. Therefore, we see that both parts of our interpretation of the parallelism are true. As each of them agrees with the other in the manner in which Solomon himself defines the terms that he used here in wisdom, where he defined world in chapter 18, verse 24, and where he defined creature in chapter 19, verse 6. So we aren't making this up. The children of Israel are the creature, the creation of wisdom 517 which will fight against with God against his enemies. The children of Israel are the world of wisdom, chapter 5, verse 20, which will fight with God against the unwise or the foolish or the nutcases. All these LGBT anti antifa freaks, they are certainly nutcases, they certainly do meet every aspect of the description here in the wisdom of Solomon. When we discussed verse 17 of this chapter of wisdom, we had already cited the words of Paul of Tarsus in chapter 10 of his second epistle to the Corinthians, where he wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Because once enough people, once enough of our brethren accept the truth and realize the truth, those strongholds will come down, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, that's the preparation. And then Paul says in verse 6, and having in a readiness, in other words, being prepared, to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So it is evident that once the children of Israel finally turn to obedience in Christ, perfecting their own obedience. Then they may rely on the hope of the promise that Yahweh God shall use them to execute revenge against his enemies. Speaking of the day of vengeance against his enemies in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, in chapter 18, We read, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. This describes that world which Christians are to despise and separate themselves from, because they, the children of Israel, are the only world for which Yahweh God has concern, and it is they alone for whom Christ had come. He doesn't give a damn about every unclean and hateful bird, or every devil and foul spirit. Then after it refers, after it refers to the fornication, which the kings of the earth have committed on account of Babylon, we read, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, And God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you. And double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. Comparing Solomon's description of the children of Israel. Who are the creation and the world of which he speaks. Professing that they shall join Yahweh their God in the revenge against his enemies. We see that same thing here in Revelation, where it says, come out of her, my people, and reward her even as she rewarded you. And then we may perceive other parallels where the enemies of Christ are described as devils, foul spirits, and unclean birds. These are not merely bad people who refuse to conform to the gospel of Christ in the modern age. These are all of the enemies of Yahweh God whose origins are found in the original rebellion of the fallen angels. And the reason why a Messiah was needed before the foundation of the world. As we read in John chapter 17. And in Revelation chapter 13, where Christ refers to himself as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In the days of Solomon, those are the enemies which he would have had in mind. The Nephilim and Rephaim and all of the bastard races which came of them starting with the Kenites and the Canaanites and others. To Solomon, the ungodly are the children of Israel who follow after them, departing from Yahweh their God, as we also saw in Isaiah chapter 59. There is another parallel in the prophecy concerning the ancient children of Israel, found in Micah chapter 4, which is a promise Of the same deliverance. And it says from verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth. O O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city. And thou shalt dwell in the field. And thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There, Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies as soon as Babylon falls. Now also many nations are gathered against thee, or every devil, every foul spirit, and every unclean and hateful bird, in other words, every nigger, Asian, Latino, Arab, and Jew. Many nations are gathered against thee, every nigger asian latino arab and jew that say let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion." they want to replace us in our own society but they know not the thoughts of yahweh neither understand they his counsel for he shall gather them as sheaves to the floor, arise and thresh O daughter of Zion, the children of Israel, in the places where they were scattered after their captivity; for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. So this is that same point at which the children of Israel are called to come out of Babylon, wherein they are called to arise and thresh. And that is when they had their opportunity to avenge all disobedience, as we see in the words of Paul. And as Solomon describes it in different ways here in Wisdom, they shall fight with Yahweh their God against his enemies. That same picture was drawn later in the Revelation in different ways in both chapters 19 and 20. Thus we read in Revelation chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The language of the Revelation is not necessarily literal, but allegorical. The armies of heaven are the people of Yahweh here on earth, who shall be called to come out of her and to arise and thresh. So Solomon describes the same things here, which are also described in Micah, and in the words of Joshua Christ himself in the revelation. And in the consistency of our interpretations, we can be confident, we can be confident that they are true. Now another aspect of wisdom must be noted, which is the use of irony. While there are many different types of irony, it is basically a literary device in which contradictory statements or situations reveal a reality that is different from what appears to be true. In Ecclesiastes, while Solomon in the opening chapters had declared that God himself had subjected man to vanity in order to be tried by it. Throughout most of the rest of the work, he declares all to be vanity, whether it be good or evil. However, not until the last chapter do we learn that all is not really vain, because in the end, Yahweh God will judge the works of men. So in the end, even vanity is vanity. Here in Wisdom, Solomon compares the ungodly and the righteous and contrasts their destinies. Then he uses these words creature and world in his descriptions of the judgment of God against his enemies. But even where they appear later and in other contexts, he does not explain what he means by these terms until the final chapters of the work where he discusses the exodus and the establishment of Israel under the law. The casual reader of wisdom may not expect those definitions of the terms, and may even be surprised or offended by them when he finally reads them, if perhaps he does not remain oblivious. Perhaps this is why the wisdom of Solomon was accepted as canon by the earliest Christians but was later rejected by the universalist Christians who formulated the doctrines of the Roman Church. Now, using language that evokes the Greek epic poets and the writers of Homeric hymns, who lived not long after the time of Solomon. He creates his own image of the final triumph of Yahweh God over his enemies. Then shall the right-aiming thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, shall they fly to the mark, and hailstones full of wrath shall be cast out of a stone bow and the water of the sea shall rage against them and the flood shall cruelly drown them in the first half of verse 21 the words right aiming may have been translated as well aimed the word for thunderbolts more literally means arrows of lightning And the verb rendered as go abroad is more simply go forth. The phrase, they shall fly to the mark, may more literally be read, they shall spring to the target. In verse 22, the word for stone bow is petrobolus, a synonym of lithobolus. Lithobolus, I mention that because we have a website by that name. Petrobolus, Petrus, means stone. And Lithobolus, Lithus also means stone. So a Petrobolus or a Lithobolus is a catapult that hurls stones. <laughs> a stone thrower is a sort of catapult. Later in the verse, later in verse 22, there is a wordplay in Greek, where the word for floods is from the Greek word for river, which is potamus. Hippopotamus actually means river horse, a horse of the river, a hippos being a horse. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers from that same word potamus as meso means in the midst or between so the word for floods is from the greek word for river which is potamus in verse 22 and the word for cruelly is an adverb apotomus apotomus from the word from the verb apotemno which is literally to cut off or to sever. So while they differ in meaning, they would certainly sound alike, so it's a wordplay. But that does not prove that the wisdom of Solomon was originally written in Greek. Just because a wordplay exists, it may have been the result of a translation very easily. In Greek mythology, especially in the epic poetry of Homer and Hesiod, Zeus is described as hurling down thunderbolts from Olympus upon those with whom he is displeased. In art, in Greek art, Zeus was depicted as a man holding a scepter in one hand and thunderbolts in another. Therefore, skeptics of wisdom may also read this and imagine it to be merely mimicking the epic poets and their pagan fantasies. However, that is not true. Perhaps it is much more accurate to believe that it was the epic poets themselves who had mimicked the scriptures. It is more likely that here Solomon was only evoking imagery, which was already seen in the accounts of the earlier deliverance of the children of Israel from out of Egypt, and imagining that the future delivery of the children of Israel from the enemies of Yahweh would happen in that same way. Thusly, we read in the 78th Psalm, which portrays portions of the Exodus account, and from verse 43, speaking of Yahweh, how he had wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, and had turned their rivers into blood and their floods, meaning their rivers, that they could not drink. That's a parallelism. Having turned their rivers into blood is a parallelism with and their floods that they could not drink. He sent diverse sorts of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. I don't know how frogs would destroy you, but I guess if you had a million of them come down on your house, that would be a serious problem. He gave also their increase unto the caterpillar and their labor unto the locust, meaning the caterpillar and the locust ate up all of their crops, all of their crops, all of their grain. He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail, and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation and trouble by sending angels among them. He made a way to his anger and spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham. But he made his own people to go forth like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on to safety, so that they feared not. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. In other words, the Homeric poets used language found in the Exodus accounts and the Psalms. So Solomon was not copying from the epic poets. In turn, Asaph, the author of that psalm, was himself referring to Exodus chapter 9, where we read in part, And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So in that respect, with that same sort of language, Solomon concludes, and he says in verse 23 of Wisdom, chapter 5, Yeah, a mighty wind shall stand up against them, still speaking of the enemies of Yahweh, and like a storm shall blow them away. Thus iniquity shall lay waste the whole earth, and ill-dealing shall overthrow the thrones of the mighty. Now, the word translated as ill-dealing is cacopragia, which is defined by Liddell and Scott as misadventure or failure, or, citing this verse of wisdom, ill-doing, I guess depending on whether it's passive or active. The word was used in the Iliad and other classical Greek writings, but perhaps not in the same sense as it is here. The word is a compound of kakos, which in a moral sense is evil, and pragma, which is a work or a deed. So we would render the clause to say that evil deeds shall overthrow the thrones of the mighty. In the end, Solomon attributes the destruction of the earth, which is the land, to the iniquity or lawlessness of the people who inhabit it. That word for iniquity being anomia, which is lawlessness. And it becomes evident that natural disasters may be attributed to sin. Even if the sinners themselves do not ever come to that realization. This also is not without precedent in Scripture, as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah appeared to be from natural disaster, but it was indeed the wrath of Yahweh which had rained down upon the sinful cities of the plains. In the days of Noah, the sinful descendants of Adam were just as ignorant as Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 24. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So returning again to 2 Peter chapter 3, he describes the end of the ungodly in the same manner in which we see Christ describe the days of Noah, and also here in the wisdom, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So, We don't know when it's going to happen, but all of the enemies of Yahweh God will be destroyed at a point where they don't know it's going to happen. Now we shall commence with and discuss the opening verses of Wisdom chapter 6. Since we will probably discuss these verses again to some degree along with the rest of chapter 6, So in some respects, this discussion may be preliminary. Wisdom chapter 6, verse 1. Hear therefore, O ye kings, and understand, learn that ye be judges of the ends of the earth. Give ear, ye that rule the people, and glory in the multitude of nations." Reading these opening verses of Wisdom chapter 6, superficially, it may be imagined that Solomon is addressing kings of races and nations outside of the children of Israel, other races and other nations apart from the children of Israel. But as we shall soon see, that is not true. First. David had already conquered many of the surrounding nations, leaving rulers over them appointed from among the officers of his own people. Furthermore, many of the children of Israel had already migrated abroad in a process that began in the days before the Exodus and which had continued throughout the period of the judges, over 500 years to the time of Solomon. So they also had already established their own separate nations and had kings ruling over them. This we see in the very first promises which Yahweh God had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Neither shall thy name anymore be called Abraham, but Abram. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Neither shall thy name be called anymore Abram. But thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations." for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, to thy offspring after thee. Then later, in the promises to Jacob, in part, in Genesis chapter 35, and God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, And kings shall come out of thy loins. This process was well underway by the time of Solomon, although the historic accounts of the Old Testament focus on the history of Israel in Palestine. But nevertheless, we see in 1 Kings chapter 4 in verse 30 that Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about. The names of a couple of these men are seen in the myths and legends concerning the founding of some of the nations round about which had already come to exist in Solomon's time. However, it is also possible that Solomon had interpreted the words of Yahweh concerning the children of Israel given in Exodus chapter 19, where he said, That ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a little differently than the traditional interpretations. Of the manuscripts. This is because these words also evoke those of John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1, where John wrote, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was, meaning Christ, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Amen. So every Christian is a king and a priest unto God the Father. As for judges, it is the children of Israel themselves who are also destined to be judges of the earth. Where it makes reference to the ends of the earth. The children of Israel were already making colonies in the ends of the earth as it was prophesied for them to do. That they were to be judges of the earth is evident in the 82nd Psalm, where it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. That term gods may have been rendered as judges. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the words of Paul of Tarsus, His admonishment of the Corinthians of Corinth, where he said, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So it is possible that addressing kings and judges, Solomon was speaking allegorically of the collective of the children of Israel. But it is also evident that the children of Israel had already begun to develop into many nations having kings of their own in fulfillment of the promises to the fathers. In any event, we see in Genesis chapter 32 a promise of power given to Israel where we read in reference to the angel of God. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For As a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and has prevailed. The name Israel has been interpreted in diverse ways. James Strong originally defined it as he will rule as God, that is, in place of God. Gesenius defined it as soldier of God. Newer lexicons claim that it means God prevails. But when the name was given to Jacob, it is Jacob who is said to have prevailed. So that newfangled definition must be rejected in spite of the fact that we know that God always prevails. So now Solomon, addressing the kings of the earth, Wisdom chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, says in verse 3, For power is given you of the Lord, and sovereignty from the highest, who shall try your works and search out your counsels. We read in the words of David in the 26th Psalm, Judge me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have also trusted in Yahweh, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Yahweh, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. So David himself is the first historical example of Solomon's words here, that Yahweh would try the works of kings and search out their counsels, which is their plans and intentions as they rule. But kings are not better than other men or common men as Solomon shall describe later. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. As the partridge sits on eggs, And hatches them not. So he that gets riches, and not by right, shall lead them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And next we see with certainty that Solomon is addressing the children of Israel whether it be collectively of as of them as kings and judges or whether it be in reference to their own kings and judges as the leaders of a nation bear a greater responsibility for its keeping where he says because being ministers of his kingdom how many times in isaiah do we hear o jacob my servant that word ministers is from a word which means servant. Because being ministers of his kingdom, you have not judged aright, nor kept the law, nor walked after the counsel of God. Horribly and speedily shall he come upon you, for a sharp judgment shall be to them that be in high places. As the Apostle Peter had said in chapter 4 of his first epistle, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begins at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Which is the purpose of these first five chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon, to explain where the righteous, the ungodly, and the sinner appear. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Those whom Solomon is addressing, he expected to judge rightly because they had the law and the counsel of god they didn't keep the law they didn't walk after the counsel of god here in verse four that can only be attributed to the children of israel that behavior as solomon was counseled by david in all things And as David had written in the 147th Psalm, which Solomon must have known, speaking of Yahweh, he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. David actually happy that the other nations never knew the judgments or the laws of God. Only the children of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests, servants of God, and ministers of his kingdom. The book of Joshua establishes the fact that even Abraham's own fathers were pagans. And in the book of Exodus, we see that before Yahweh had given his law to Israel, the law of which Solomon speaks, it was never given to any other nation. That is also evident in the words of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 5. So if only Israel had the law, which Solomon must have known because David knew it, and if David actually rejoiced because only Israel had the law. We must imagine that addressing kings and judges in reference to the law, Solomon is addressing only kings and judges of the children of Israel. The only answer to who are the world is that the children of Israel are the world. Because that is the will of God. They shall all be saved. And to Yahweh God himself, nothing else matters. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel and Israel alone. And in the end, everything that is not Israel goes to the lake of fire. So it is not of his world. Good night.